the Get Real Indie Filmcast with Jeffrey Michael Bays and Forrest Day Jr. On our last show, we uh, we asked everybody what they're shooting on, and um, the results are actually uh, surprising. I I thought there'd be a lot of 4K, a lot of people shooting on 4K, but apparently uh, 1080p is still uh, still the most popular. I think that's because a lot of people don't have the money for the 4K cameras, and I know there's in cell phones and and everything, but uh, still, uh, high def is probably what's most affordable for people. I think it's a cost thing. Yeah, that, that very well could be. Uh, we want to know what you think. Uh, what are you shooting on? Tweet us at Borges Film or email info at Borges.com. And on the show today is John Tregonis, and he's the author of Crowdfunding for Filmmakers. John's also the head film campaign strategist for film at Indiegogo. That's, that's at, a, okay. Yeah, nice. Quite a quite a uh, quite a heading. So he's yeah. So he's the go-to guy. I mean, he's the best of the best uh, for any filmmaker that wants to know about this crowdfunding thing. He's the one to go to. He's done TED talks too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And his book is uh, his book's in its second edition. You know, I did. I did a crowdfunding. I just finished a crowdfunding and uh, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, if you don't know, if you've never done it, if you're thinking about doing it, it's really tough being in the campaign because you have to constantly be in publicity mode and you're constantly asking people for money and it can really get you down. Know anything about changing a tire? Want to help me change a tire? You could use a little help. No? $25? $30? $30 to change a tire. Okay, $35. $35 change this tire for me right now. I'll give you $35. I'll give you $10 for a response. For a verbal response. $10. Anybody want to make $10 and respond verbally? No? So that's what it, that's what it feels like. <laughs> that's, that's what it feels like. To be in a crowdfunding campaign, you know, if, if you if you don't want people to talk to you, um, just just start up a crowdfunding campaign. That's yeah, the ask quickest them for money. Way, the quickest way to get people to leave you alone, <laughs> because <laughs> because that is exactly what it's like. I'll give you ten dollars for a response. <laughs> That's Larry David, by the way, and the uh, curb your enthusiasm. Uh, so, John Tregon is uh, on the way very soon, and we will be talking with him about uh, how to succeed in crowdfunding your film. Um, you know, there's a, there's a thing that came out a couple of months ago. This is, uh, you know, this is the Tippy Hedron Hitchcock thing. A couple of months ago, if you haven't heard about this, Tippy Hedron is, of course, an actress in two of Hitchcock's films, and... Uh, uh, she has um, now compared Hitchcock to Harvey Weinstein. Ooh. <laughs> and yeah. and so um, I kind of feel like um, as someone that goes out and I travel the country and I teach Hitchcock techniques and I'm around this kind of material all the time, uh, I feel like maybe I should address this or say something about it because – you know, I'm somewhat of an expert, although I'm not a biographer. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I focus on the techniques of, with the camera, right. not necessarily, you know, how to treat the actors and whatnot. But 
you know, I, it, it, I get the feeling that this has gone a little bit too far um, with with Tippy Hedren. Mm. Yeah, I not to knock it, but I, it, it's 50 years later and I'm not saying uh, it, it seems like her stories kind of go with the times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it, it seems like the story just keeps growing like over time because she started saying this back in the eighties, right? Um, Donald Spotto had this book and uh, by the way, he's known for kind of gossipy stuff. Uh, so he interviewed her for this book and uh, uh, revealed at that point that there was an incident on the set of the birds um, where mm-hmm. Hitchcock apparently tried to kiss her in a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, did not succeed, but tried. Okay, now I'm not saying it didn't happen. Um, it may very well have happened. Yes. Um, but then Tippy Hedren takes it a step further and says, because he was rejected, he decided to destroy her career and uh, actually harm her on the set. Mm. Um, and she, and this comes out in these films that are based on this book. Uh, in 2012, there's two films, The Girl and also Hitchcock. I, I have not seen those films. Have you seen those films? No. No, I haven't seen them. I remember when they came out, but they didn't capture my interest uh, as much as I love Hitchcock. They seem too dramatized for me, and maybe they're not, but uh, I, they just didn't interest me. It looked too... Uh, like a TV movie dramatization. that That's the feeling I got from right, it. And right, I could yeah. be totally wrong. I may be wrong. They just, oddly enough, did not interest me. Because I right. like, you know, if it was a documentary on Hitchcock, then that interests me. Yeah, sure. Um, well, as it turns out, biographers have picked apart these two films as being complete fiction. There's so many things. There's so many claims. There's so many... There's his personality. There's the way he talks. Everything about it is fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. And it has done a lot, I think. It has done a lot to change his reputation uh, among younger filmmakers especially because there's there's obviously a lot of people interested in his work because he's one of the best filmmakers of all time, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think uh, when you when you make a movie and it says based on actual events or based on a true story, people read that as a true story. Mm, they ju- yeah. they just take a real fact and then build around build around it with fiction. So, sure. Well, like for instance, um, they depict the marriage between Alma and Alfred as being a troubled marriage. Mm-hmm. And from all accounts, from all the biographers and all the family members and all that, that is complete nonsense. They had a happy marriage and they were notorious for being uh, a, a great couple, stable couple, and had no problems. They did not mortgage the house to pay for Psycho. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's, just, there's just all these things that are in this movie that are just complete fiction. So, you know, the Me Too movement comes along and the Harvey Weinstein thing comes along and all of a sudden T.P. Hedren now has uh, expanded her story into, you know, even more incidents where he, you know, was trying to kiss her and all this stuff and making it difficult for her on set and all this. So all I'm saying is be skeptical about what you're hearing 
Um, you know, she may have experienced bad things. You have to realize her situation. Uh, she was not an actor. She was a model. She was 31 years old. She had been divorced with a kid, just moved to L.A., and she had no acting experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she'd been for 10, 15 years, had been a model on magazine covers. She was in a couple of commercials. So being suddenly in the feature film world, being a lead actress in a feature film, that's a lot of work. And so here you have Alfred Hitchcock that has worked with hundreds, Mm. hundreds of actors in his career. And this is the only one, right? It's the only one I've ever heard making accusations. Not to say there haven't been others, but... In fact, there has been a lot of pushback in Tippi Hedren's claims over the years. And a lot of actresses and actors and cast and crew, people that worked on these films and others, saying that uh, her claims are unbelievable. They had a bitter contract dispute because she had signed a seven-year deal or something like that. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, acting was more difficult in a feature film than expected. She's in this film with live birds. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a scene where she has to be attacked by birds and it went on for days and days and days to get the shot right. And so she was traumatized uh, just being in the role. And that would have happened to any actor in the role. So the experience being on the set was probably not the best. Okay. Just by the, by way of the material. All right. Um, so that's kind of her mindset in this Mm -hmm. situation. And so now she claims that when she was in the phone booth, the glass broke and she got cut and that he did that on purpose. (laughs) Um, and you know, crew members say, no, that's not even possible because he had nothing to do with the glass. It was the prop man that had the wrong glass in by mistake. Yeah, so, yep. mm-hmm. so this, this is all the, you know, obviously her mindset is that, she, that he was out to get her, uh, yeah. to destroy her. And to some extent, that's probably true because, you know, she wanted out of her contract and he said no. And so this is the kind of thing that happens during contract disputes, you know, but, but the thing is, you know, she's still trying to, <laughs> 20, 30 years later, she's still trying to trash him. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I just have a, I have a real issue with comparing him to Harvey Weinstein. That That's, mm. that's where, when I hear that, I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, that's, that's like a, I don't want to say an easy thing to do, but it's like all of a sudden to put him under the same umbrella, I don't go for it. And there have been other claims, uh, such as this woman, Marley Renfro. Have you ever heard of her? She was the body double for yeah. Janet Lee in Psycho, and she complained that Hitchcock made her get undressed for her audition. Now, at first, it's like, hmm, that sounds bad. Well, what is she auditioning for? The shower scene. Right. The and they, scene. <laughs> they are so So now here's a gray area. Do you have her undressed? Right. You need to have – not that there was any nudity in that scene, but it was you know through the glass and all of that, and you're showing – shoulder and leg and you know you're just showing parts of her body so part of that audition process may well be hey we need to see your you know it is 
a semi-nude scene. I guess I would call yeah. it a semi-nude scene. It's a shower scene. Right. So even um, though I, even though it's not full nudity on the camera, it is on the set, obviously. Even yeah. for Janet Lee, by the way. Um, so, so she's saying sexual harassment, but that's, um, that's more about procedure on the set and how you audition, you know, how you handle nudity and how you handle sex scenes and that sort of thing. I mean, that's yeah. uncomfortable for everybody, right? That's mm-hmm. uncomfortable for the actors. It's uncomfortable for the crew. Um, it, it's a, it's a very difficult situation. You have to be professional and do the best you can. I mean, and I'm sure he did. And there's no allegation there of, of anything romantic or, uh, predatory aside from, you know, the scene itself. Right. I I think she's, she's not complaining about Hitchcock. I think in this article that I read, Marley Renfro is just basically sharing what the casting process was right. like. And just kind of and a ha- fun story. <laughs> and, and she, and she was uncomfortable, but I mean, you know, they. Right. I'm sure it, most people would be in that situation. Yeah, and and she actually says, uh, here's a quote from the article, and then he took me to Janet Lee's, I guess, her dressing room or trailer, wherever, and I had to disrobe for her. Our bodies very, very were very similar, and I think that's the reason I got hired for that, you know, yeah. at, for the body double. So I, I don't think have, that's an accusation. I think that's just um, they're tying right, these yeah. stories together. Just a fun story, and people are going nuts with it. Like, yeah. Uh, and by the way, she must have done a good job because I didn't even know there was a stunt double. <laughs> yeah, so. I, nor did I until I read this article. Um, the the uh, article is on a website called Town and Country Mag. Okay. So plug for their website. But yeah, I mean, but Hitchcock the the way he's portrayed now in these movies and and by the, you know, by the mainstream press and all that. You know, that that was part of his branding image. That he was kind of a creepy old British guy, mm-hmm. but in real life, in real life he was totally different. He was telling jokes, he was happy, laughing all the time. Uh, he was a kind of a roly-poly happy fat guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a lot of evidence for that, that, that he just always had fun. Mm-hmm. He was a very fun, uh, lively person to be around. Um, and it may be that uh, he was joking and Tippy didn't understand the joke or whatever. I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to make excuses. But you have to realize also that he was a very controlling director. He and was many a, are. Many are. Right. He was a perfectionist. And he treated his actors almost as if they are paints in an artist's palette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? The colors yeah. of paint. Yep. And, you know, people always, there's this myth about how he was obsessed with blondes. You know, he just had this obsession about blonde women. <laughs> That's all complete yeah. BS. Yeah. He liked to have blonde women in leads because of the audience's perception mm-hmm. of blonde women at the time was different than a brunette and it's just almost you know it's like picking out your colors in your palette to paint a picture you know the artist knows that that blue has a different effect than red and you know burnt sienna has a different effect than white and you know so as an artist he's picking out his cast uh, that look a certain way that have certain colors of hair that have certain facial expressions or lack thereof Mm-hmm. And so that's what he's looking at during the casting process. And so that's what his world is, is perfecting what appears on the screen. So um, being an actor 
And by the way, being an actor that has no acting experience whatsoever, being uh, pushed into this kind of world where all of a sudden you have this controlling director that's telling you, uh, going through every minute detail about where to look, when to laugh, when to raise your voice, when to pause. You know, he just controlled everything about her performance. Mm -hmm. It probably made her feel a little bit, uh, you know, insecure, wouldn't you think? <laughs> when you're on a when you're on a movie set, uh, it's uh it's an ego fest. And and there's a pecking order and the director right up there at the top. It can be intimidating. Um it, it certainly can be intimidating and things come off like he don't like me or or, or he doesn't like me or they don't like me, whatever because of the way I was talked to. Well, that, that's the way it is on movie sets. There's egos abound and you can read into people you i've i've been on a few different sets and i've seen it in action and i've seen people get flustered and i see other people that just like yeah this is this is how it is and the people who can be this is how it is are fine it's the people who really get affected by people's egos and and they start turning this person into a monster uh they kind of got it wrong it's just how it is i <laughs> mean I don't yeah. know. I, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Interesting uh, atmosphere for sure. So anyways, my, my overall message about this is be skeptical. Look at the details. Do the research. There's definitely more going on than just, you know, a, you know, a claim. Um, there's a contract dispute. You know, there's all this kind of stuff. And then there's the story that has grown over the years. So that's all I'm saying. Be skeptical. Uh, we want to know what you think. Uh, tweet us at Borges Film or email info at Borges.com. We'd love to have your uh, comments and uh, your opinions, and maybe you can tell us that we're completely wrong. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's perfectly fine. Yep. Um, on the way, we have John Tregonis. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back on the Get Real Indie Filmcast. To contact the show, tweet at Borges Film, the Get Real Indie Filmcast. If you're a filmmaker with a sense of humor, let me introduce you to the Spoof Dance Film Festival. This is the festival for those who like to make parodies. Spoof Dance specializes in TV commercial parodies, and you can also submit TV show parodies. Submission is open now. Visit Borgus.com slash spoofdance to find out more. You know what I think the biggest problem is with crowdfunding? What's that? Well, I think the problem is uh, we, we, we seem to live in a time. Uh, we seem to live in a moment where if you don't already have a fan base, um, then it's almost impossible to get one. So Isn't that funny? Would you ever think of right. saying uh, having a fan base like yeah, so 20, it's, it's 20 years like, ago? <laughs> right, exactly. And I think... A movie like Donnie Darko uh, could not be made today. That's interesting. Uh, because first of all, it had no following before it was made, right? Right, yeah. Safe to say. So could a movie like Donnie Darko actually be made today? I don't know. Here's a movie about a kid that sees a rabbit, and there's a time loop caused by an airplane engine. Uh, try putting that on Indiegogo. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, an engine falls through his bedroom, <laughs> and uh, and then there's a a guy dressed like a rabbit. Please support my film. Yeah, yeah. Pr- probably not. Probably would not happen. Probably would not get funding. Probably would not get retweets. And see, I, that's what I think the problem is. I think everybody's so focused on how much of a following do you have? What's your following before you actually start making the movie? And I think I think that's, uh, you know, in some ways it's good. In some ways it's uh, it's leaving out good stories. I think uh, the crowdfunding, uh, one of the biggest problems is not understanding what what the project is or what people – uh, a, a lack of clarity. So if you're if you're in a crowdfund and you're struggling, um, the one person to turn to is John Trigonis, the um, author of Crowdfunding for Filmmakers, and he's with us right now. Yeah, yeah. John is a he's a writer, a story maker. He's a crowdfunding mentor, and he is the author of Crowdfunding for Filmmakers. It's a great book on uh, crowdfunding and how you can learn how to crowdfund for your film. Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I am uh, I'm very excited to be here. Great to have you. Now, let's talk about some basics of crowdfunding. Awesome. My favorite thing to talk about, the basics, um, because the basics are so darn important. And if you can't get those right, everything else, I mean, you could do all that stuff, but it may not be to the, to the benefit of the campaign. So a couple of things. The first thing is you want, I mean, this is in no order, um, but the first, you know, one of the first things is you want to not have to do it alone. You know, that's a big thing is like get a small team together of people, like-minded people who are passionate about your film and want to see it succeed. So the minute you find those people, get them. Now, I have three types of team members that I tell people to, uh, to kind of try to find when they can. Um, there's the A-team because I wanted to name it after the show, the B team and the C team. So the A and the B team come at the beginning. The C team comes later, but the A team is you, your passion, because that's actually a team member if you really think about it. And then anybody who's really close to you that is almost as passionate about your project as you are. You will never find someone who loves it as much as you. They're going to tweet 10 times a day. They're going to Facebook. They're going to go to parties and always talk about your, your campaign that's running right now. You just won't find it. It's unrealistic to think that you are in charge of inspiring those closest of friends and sometimes family members to do some work for you and spread the word. So that's the A team. Those are the people you can rely on. You got the B team, which is if you can find them, which is great, interns. Because there's some stuff that you may want to do that you just don't want to do, but it needs to get done. Like while you're crowdfunding, you may also want to be looking for an investor, maybe looking for someone to put in a bigger contribution. So instead of the five, 10 and $25 that typically comes in, you might try to find somebody to do 5,000 or 10,000 or more. So that's, that's part of the intern's job. And, and again, you can use these interns because they're going to learn about crowdfunding which is like totally sexy these days. It's like you say crowdfunding, people are like, I want to learn that, I'll do anything. Bam, you got them. Um, how good they are, well, we got to figure that out. And you teach them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are the, the kind of interns that do that stuff. If you want to even send out for grant proposals while you're crowdfunding, because crowdfunding, sometimes it doesn't cover the whole cost. It's just a piece of it. And you have to do these other things, but you crowdfunding is a full-time job. So you got to focus there. You get the interns to write the grant proposals. They're learning stuff. They're sending them out. You know, you check 
come obviously, but you didn't have to write it and it's just frees you up. So the B team is very important and you can go to any university and just fill out a little bit of paperwork and then you're in the book for their co-op education program and you'll find somebody if they're interested in the project or your company. The C team comes later. You're gonna find when you crowdfund, when you're doing it right and you're following all the strategies that I outline and that I talk about all the time, you're gonna find the crowd, your audience and your community are gonna get excited. And some of them might even take such an interest, they're gonna promote for you and they're gonna do things so I always say, if you see somebody promoting and pushing and you're not asking them, reach out to them, say, thank you so much. Can I put you on my team? Because you've been an asset right now. And you may have a team, a C team of two people or 20 or 200. That's the beauty of the crowd team, as I call it. So that's, that's the, one of the big basics because we shouldn't have to do it alone. Another thing that we got to focus on is how much funding we need. Um, you know, you can decide things like, is crowdfunding right for my project? And that, that's a whole other deal. But like, if it is, and assuming it is, well, how much do you need? Now, there's a, there's a discrepancy there. It's like, how much do you need to make the film? But there's also, that has to be balanced by how much can I actually raise? And a lot of people, a big mistake that a lot of people make is they sometimes set a very high goal that they just can't reach. Right. And it messes up the momentum of the campaign. You, and you, that's why you see a lot of unsuccessful campaigns. Great stuff happening, goal's too big. You're, you're fighting against a very massive mountain and you're a beginning mountain climber. So we have to look at ourselves and say, what can I raise from my friends and my family? That's not where it's going to go. That's not where, that's not all the money you're going to get. But from your friends and family, you want to kind of in your head think that you can get at least 30% of that money that you want. So if you want $50,000, perfect. You should be able to get 30% of that $50,000 from your family and friends in the opening days. And the opening days, of course, is very important for the momentum you want to have the restaurant, uh, in metaphorically speaking, the restaurant of your crowdfunding campaign. You want to make sure that it's opening night and you've got people sitting there and eating and enjoying because then me, when I walk by, I'm going to take notice. I'm going to be like, wow, that campaign is like 40% funded and it's cool. Let me check it out versus walking past it and being like, ooh, 2% funded. Come back later. They never do. <laughs> Right. I mean, everybody wants to be on a winning team. Absolutely. The winning horse, the winning team, the, the, the underdog, right? In every movie, we love the underdog, but only when they're winning. Because if they're not winning, they're, well, they're a loser, unfortunately. And why are we watching the movie at that point? There's a lot of different sites that um, people can choose from, too. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about which site and how to decide which site Indigo, Indiegogo, um, mm -hmm. Kickstarter. And there's, I'm sure there's many others. There are many others. Um, so, so, you know, as you know, I mean, I, I'm a little bit biased on this one because I do work full time for Indiegogo. Um, and, and so again, Indiegogo is like the place you should go mainly for this kind of interaction because people have access to me they can read my book and that's great and they can go off. But if they know they can reach out to me and they've got an Indiegogo campaign, they can directly reach out to me through email and I can look at a campaign. So that's a huge difference. But really, you want to look at just in, in a general sense. And there's, there's two platforms that everybody knows. 
And there's a bunch of others that are much more niche. The only, and they're good. Some of them are good. But the problem is they don't have the reach that the two powerhouses do. Mm-hmm. So you want reach because you do want to tap into your audience, but you also want to tap into a potential audience too. So you want to go for one of those bigger ones as long as you know how to use the tools. Each platform, Indiegogo has tools. The other guys have tools. Look at those tools and see which ones you can use. There's only a couple of differences, really, um, because they're basically the tools are the same. Campaign video, Herc's column, really it. What I used to call my three P's, and now I call my three ins. The, uh, the, in, the three P's were pitch, perks, and promotion. The ins are incent, uh, invitation, incentives, and interactions, which is basically the same stuff, just much more personal. As the, As the campaign, campaign moves along, mm-hmm. uh, um, what should you do? It's getting near the end. Oh, man. Uh, you're maybe not at your goal. What should someone do? They got to push. And they got to push in the sense of promoting certain things about the campaign. So, again, coming up with a new perk is a great way to get people excited, especially towards the end. Or if you have cool perks, but they haven't moved yet, they haven't been taken, that might mean they're just too expensive. So do a flash sale, quick flash sale, drop the price by half, promote it on Facebook and Twitter and email, and you'll get someone to to contribute. Just make sure you don't lose money if you have to produce that item. That's one surefire way to do it. Another thing, this is a big one. This is like a 201 course type of thing. Do a live stream. I worked with the Iron Sky, the coming race campaign, and these guys did a six-hour live stream. They were giving away items, you know, selling perks, new perks and things like that. And they had guests and everything who were all part of the movie. And it was amazing. It was really long, but it was amazing. And they made, I think it was like $62,000 around that amount in just six hours because of that live stream. So doing some kind of a Google Hangout type event on like one of your last days, surefire way to get people excited. Now the now it's wrapped up. You 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 got your money, the perks. Um, how important is that to, to make sure you get them out? Um, it's de- it's definitely important because again, if you don't deliver on your perks, especially the movie perk, because that's a perk. Mo- most of the time, for twenty five bucks, you get a download, and that that could come out two years later if it has to. But you got to deliver. If you're promising a T-shirt or a mug, you got to deliver. Just get it out of the way. That's my biggest advice. Get it out of the way. Do them real fast because people do want things now. They have this immediate gratification thing. They'll wait for the movie. They get it. You know, you got to make it. We gave you the money. Go make it. But give me something to remember that I funded you. Give me that mug with a, with your logo if if you have to, or just give me an experience that I can remember through the internet during that time. That will always make me remember. But the biggest thing to do, even if you can't deliver on your perks immediately, just keep people updated. These backers, they are no different than investors, except the fact that you never have to give them a cut of your money. They are giving you their money to make an awesome product. Just treat them with that same respect. Let them know. It's, it's going to be another month, but we're, we're here. We're listening to you. We're not going anywhere. We're not taking the money and running. Great advice, John. And I like that, though. Treat them with respect. That's great. Uh, um, before we go, how can people get a hold of you? They can find me easily on Twitter. I am at T R I G O N I S, my last name, Trigonis. 
or they can, uh, they can just, they'll find me somewhere. Believe me, you'll see me at a seminar doing something. All right. And of course, check out the book, uh, crowdfunding for filmmakers. All right. Thanks a lot, John. I totally appreciate your information. We'll have John back on the show at some point in the future. Can't wait. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Get Real Indie Filmcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at BorgesFilm. The Get Real Indie Filmcast is a production of Borges Networks 2018.